This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to be with you. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Vortex, and it's such a privilege to be walking through this series. It's probably related. I believe this week is going to be remarkably eye-opening, challenging, and filled with a lot of hope for what the future for you and your family can look like. Now, next week, we're going to wrap this series up, and I'm excited for what that means for you and for our church, because my pastor, Pastor Dan Stahlbaum, is going to be here. Uh, Dan pastored a wonderful church in South Florida, East Coast Christian Church in Merritt Island. Started with just a handful of people, grew it to thousands, multiple campuses, and has recently handed it off to his son. And so next Sunday, he's going to be here. He's, he's a powerful mentor for me. He's kind of, in a sense, a spiritual father. He has blessed us significantly every time he's been here. And then the very next week, my great friend, Corey Williams, is going to be here. Corey pastors an amazing church, a multi-ethnic church in Savannah. And Corey's just a phenomenal communicator. He actually works with John Maxwell and the Maxwell Group, coaching leaders across the country. And so that night, he's going to do Leadership Collective at our downtown campus for us, which means we're going to come together. And really, it's just an opportunity if you're a leader. doesn't matter where you're a leader. If you're a leader at home, a leader on a sports team, you're a leader in your business, it's a chance for us to get together and grow as leaders because that's a powerful way that we increase and steward the influence that God has given us in life. And so we can do that together as we gather together with Corey that evening. Now, this has been a series for us about family, which is a series about relationships, but specifically in the context of family. Some of us get excited because we're like family. I want to be a better mom. I want to be a better dad. I, I, I want to learn kind of the template for what a good, healthy marriage should look like. We get excited. For some of us, though, we, we actually get uncomfortable because family was not the comfortable experience that we'd love for it to have been. In, in the space where we were supposed to be safe, supposed to be taken care of, instead of all of that, we actually were um, neglected or maybe even abused. And so in our hearts where there's potentially could be for some of us excitement. There's kind of a cringe that happens when we're, oh, we're going to be talking about family. I just want to bring everybody into the same space as we start today. See, every family has a history of dysfunction. That's my family, my family of origin. So walking it back generations, the family that we're creating now, it's also your family. Every family has a history of dysfunction because every family has a history of sin. When we talk about dysfunction, it's not just a, a matter of preference. So we sometimes like to think about it. Well, I would, I would prefer that it be this way, but it's not that. Dysfunction is connected to sin. I mean, let me give you a few examples. For example, we know that some families, the dysfunction for that family is kind of wrapped around control. It might be that there's a passivity 
or that there's a sense of a, a controlling nature. We might just simply say, well, that's a preference. I would rather it not be that way, but that's sin. It's not just dysfunction. Because if I'm in control, that means God is not in control. It's sin. For some of our families, it's that we are always right. And that's why your family is so good at arguing, because everybody is always right. And you're going to tell them how right you are. But that's self-righteousness. If you understand the Bible, you understand that we're not right. Not even in our best case. So pretending or acting like I'm always right is sin. It's not just dysfunction. It's just not a matter of preference. It's, it's sin. And sin breaks what God created good and makes it complicated. And for some of us, that's the testimony of our experience with family. Sin for you might have been mom and dad sitting you down, we're not going to live together. It might have been the generational passing down of certain types of sin. It might have been abuse or neglect. It's true, no family is perfect. My family is not perfect. Your family was not perfect. That's true. But it's also true that we're not victims of our past. So in the very first week of this message series, I told you sometimes we need to go back so that we can go forward. Because we can't win the battle if we don't know what battle we're fighting. And so sometimes going back is being able to look at, at how was family growing up? What was it that I learned did I see addiction? Did I see manipulation? Was it normal to lie? You got to go back and see it so that you can then turn around and go forward. See, sin has generational consequences. It's not just about you if you're mom and dad. Sin is something that we hand off like a baton in a race. But so does faith. Not only does sin affect the subsequent generations, moves of faith, victories in faith become victories that subsequent generations have access to. So in this series, we've been looking at the first family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We looked at Abraham. Abraham is old and childless. And God promises him when he's 75 years old, to give him a child. After literally years, decades of trying and failing and trying and failing, God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. You look up at that sky, you see all those stars. Your family will be bigger than that. But Abraham almost settles for less than God's best. See, the promise wasn't, Abraham, you go do it your own way. The promise has been, you've been trying to do that with your wife. You're going to be able to do it with your wife through me. I'm going to give you a child. But almost instantly, Abraham settles for trying to do it halfway. He has a son with Hagar. 
his wife's maidservant, and it fractures the world as we know it. Where did this come from? It's probably related. We looked at this in the first week. This is the story of Abraham's father. Terah, that's his dad, took Abram. This is Abraham, his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai. This is Sarah. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. This was the journey. They left home to go to the promised land. That's what Canaan was. But when they came to Haran, they settled. Abraham's father settled halfway, and then Abraham almost did the same thing. Almost missed out on God's best. It's probably related. So Isaac then is born to Abraham when Abraham's 100 years old. And if you look at the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, and his family, we looked at this last week. Isaac's family was dominated by manipulation. It's insane. The younger son, Jacob, steals the birthright from his older son, manipulating Esau when he's hungry. Jacob and the mom, Rebekah, literally conspire to steal Isaac's blessing. Where did this culture of manipulation and lies, where did it come from? Well, if you look back at the life of Abraham, you see a few moments. Here's a moment in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham speaking to his wife, Sarah. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. What's he doing? He's manipulating and lying. It only happens two times, and it seems like a small issue. But what was a small issue in Abraham's life became a dominant issue in the family of Isaac. It's probably related. So today we're going to look at the next one in line, Jacob in the first family. And there's probably more about Jacob than there is about all three. We know a good bit about Abraham. We know a little bit about Isaac. We know a lot about Jacob. What do we know about Jacob so far? Well, we know he was a mama's boy. Esau, the older brother, the Bible says he was a man of the open country. He went out, he was, he was a killer of wild game. He would have been on Yellowstone, okay? I mean, that's who he was. He would have been kind of, he would have been the bad dude. But Esau stayed home with his mom. She was his favorite, or he was her favorite. And he helped cook. He helped clean. He managed the tents. He managed the house. He was a mama's boy. He was manipulative. He was a liar. It's actually prophesied when the Bible talks about their birth. The Bible says that Jacob, Esau's born first. Jacob comes out trying to hold his heel. In other words, trying to steal his place, which is what he eventually does. The name Jacob literally means manipulator. There's an identity in him so far of being the one who's manipulative. So what happens after that moment when he's stolen the blessing away 
from his older brother. Genesis 27 says this, when Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. So mom hears out, my boys are about to get in a fight. We already know who's going to win the fight. Okay, let's just be honest about that. It's going to be Esau. Jacob's going to get his butt handed to him. It's not going to be pretty. And she's like, you need to get out of here. He said he's going to kill you. Go. And something happens. Jacob is on his way out. And he stopped to camp at a place known as Bethel. And God intersects his story. He has a dream. And in the dream, God begins to speak to Jacob. And he says the very same thing to Jacob that he said to his grandfather Abraham, Jacob, I will turn you into a great nation. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 15, I'm just going to say I have had to at times lean on to what God spoke to Jacob because this is a promise for us about the character and nature of God. Look at what God said to him in this dream. The Lord said, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. What's he saying? All right, I know you're running for your life, but there's going to come a day that I'm going to bring you back here. Why? Because I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God's making a promise. And he's promising that, Jacob, I'm going to bless you. I'm a, your, your family is going to turn into a great nation and I'm not going to leave you until I bless you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Has that ever happened to you? You're going through a hard time. Doesn't make any sense to you. Feel like your soul's getting crushed. And then all of a sudden, it makes sense. And you see what God's been doing. And it hadn't been easy, but what God's been producing within you has been good. It's been valuable. And all of a sudden, you wake up. God, you were in it all along. I didn't see it. I didn't recognize it. That's what happens to Jacob. All of a sudden, he sees, God, you've been here. So he heads out to go find his uncle Laban. And as he comes into the camp, he sees a young woman and he falls in love. Now his mom has intentionally sent him away to find a wife and build a family. And this begins to happen. Now look at this, Genesis 29, verse 16. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for, for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, it would have been very customary to pay a dowry to a family to earn the right to marry a young woman. And if you're sitting there going, wasn't he going to go see his uncle Laban? And this guy's the. Now I know the name of the series is it's probably related, but they was definitely related, y'all. Okay. 
Just to make sense of that, there's 7 billion people on the planet today. At this point in history, it's widely believed that there were only about 15 million on the entire planet. So when you hear about this kingdom or this kingdom or this kingdom, it's literally families. There's not multi-generations going back. It's just a few generations of families established in these kingdoms. So I want to do that. And instead of him having money to pay as the dowry, he says, I can give you years of service. So he does. For seven years, he goes to work for Laban. Now, I want to look at this real quickly because this says Leah had weak eyes. Can I just interpret that for a moment? She had a nice personality. That's, that's what the Bible's saying here. Can I just say, if you're trying to get two young people to be interested in them, do not describe one of them as they have a nice personality. Okay? She had weak eyes. If you pay attention to the text, what they're saying very clearly is that Rachel was very pretty and Leah was not. Seven years later, Jacob... This is what I'm working for. We're going to get married. The night of the wedding comes. They have been partying all day. And Laban says, man, I got this guy. He pulls Leah aside and says, come here. Dresses her up in the wedding dress. Puts the veil over her face. They go through the ceremony. That night, Jacob takes his bride, consummates the wedding, and wakes up the next morning and he is married to Leah. Goes to his father, father-in-law. What, what, what is this? I worked seven years. He goes, listen, it is not customary to marry off the older one without having already, or to marry off the younger one without having already married off the older one. You, you, we'll do the same deal seven more years and she's yours. Seven more years. And he comes to Laban and goes, listen, I've, I've got your two daughters and, and I don't have anything to provide for them. That's fine. Why don't you give me a few more years? All the while, Jacob finally wakes up. Through the years, he's been having sons. His family's been growing. And when his father-in-law said, if you work for a few more years, so I, whatever goats, you, and it makes this weird arrangement, but Jacob prospers out of it. But what's happening is it's years getting stolen off of his life. And he wakes up one day realizing that my father-in-law's manipulated me out of decades. And he senses the Spirit of God calling him to return home. Who's there? His brother who wants to kill him. He's right in the middle. In Genesis chapter 31, Jacob runs from Laban. Literally, God speaks. He's, pack it all up tonight. We're leaving. In the middle of the night, they all leave. Laban decides to chase him down. It's going to kill him. God intervenes. They eventually make peace. And Jacob's caught in this moment between Laban behind him and Esau, his brother, in front of him that wanted to kill him. And there's something powerful that happens in that moment. Jacob's desperate. There's something about a heart that is desperate for God, that knows that there's nothing else that can solve my problems. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of influence. God, it can only be you. 
And that day, as they're beginning to make camp and make preparations to meet Esau, something remarkable happens. It's recorded in Genesis 32. This is what the Bible said. After Jacob had sent his family across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. There's a paradox, an apparent contradiction in that last sentence. He was left alone, but he wrestled with a man until daybreak. Like Joshua who came face to face with the angel of the Lord. Or Moses who had God walk by. Jacob comes face to face with God. And all night long, what he's doing is he is wrestling with this man for a blessing. I want you to bless me. Why is he saying that? Because God said, I will not leave you until I give you everything that I promised. And Jacob's saying, I'm not letting you leave until you bless me. There's something that happens in that moment. Jacob, in his arrogance, is being so forceful. You're going to have to do it. And the man touches his hip, dislocates his hip. In all that pain, Jacob refuses to give up. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that after that, Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. When he refused to give up in all that pain, Genesis 32, verse 28 records this. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. Jacob, the name, meaning manipulator, you will no longer be that. You have a new identity. You are an overcomer. So walking with a limp. There's some times you're going to come in contact with God in your life and you're going to leave with a limp. You're going to leave with a limp in your walk. It's going to remind you humbly of who God is and who you are. There's some stuff in our life that ought to humble us a little bit, ought to knock us down a notch when we think about who God is in our lives. And that's what happened to Jacob that night. He comes out. All right, I'm going to meet Esau today. I want you to arrange all these gifts. I'll give him everything I got. His brother rides in past all those gifts, comes face to face. Jacob just bows on the ground. He's like, get up. You want all that? I don't, I don't need all that. I'm glad you're here. Where are you going? You want to ride together? Doesn't want to kill him. God begins to establish Jacob's family. They begin to settle into the promised land. And in Genesis 35, at Bethel again, Jacob has another moment with God. Begins in this way, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again and blessed him. Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. You were a manipulator, but Jacob... You're going to be an overcomer. And God said to him, this is so powerful, verse 11, 
I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Just like his grandfather who experienced a call at age 70, but then a covenant at age 75. Jacob has his first moment at Bethel and then begins to move in faith. And then there's a moment when God shows up and everything changes. I want to make a few simple points out of this as we think about this scripture. Number one, Jacob created a, a culture of manipulation and he suffered under one as well. You, you see this from the text. He was the one who stole the birthright, who stole the blessing of his father. But then he had years of his life stolen by his father-in-law. You ever seen that girl starts dating a guy and you're like, don't you see who that guy is? He's just like your daddy. Didn't you see all the pain your daddy caused your mom? Why you want the same thing? Well, they can't see it. They can't see it. You know why they can't see it? Because it's the culture that they grew up in. See, every family has a culture. Your family has a culture. My family has a culture. You know what culture means? The word culture just simply means a way of life. It's our systematic approach to making decisions. This is how we live. Your family has a culture. My family has a culture. And based on the sinful past of every family, there is a default in how we live. Your default might be to go towards being controlling. It might be to go towards manipulation. It might be addiction. It do, all of us have different defaults. God has a design. When we're redeemed and rescued by the mercy of God, we can grow towards His design. But without the intervention of God, we live in His. what is the default of the sinful patterns of behavior that we learned. Here's the problem with that. You can't often see your default culture. Jacob grew up in a manipulative culture. So when he gets to Laban, it's just like the fish in water. This just makes sense. This is how it is. Until two decades into it, he's like, this is not right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. He was willing to be manipulative and literally profited off of it. But then he's losing decades of his life to manipulation. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The kingdom of God is a sowing and reaping kingdom. And Jacob sowed seeds of manipulation, but then he reaped it as well in his life. Which is why number two is so important. God graciously rescued Jacob from the destructive spiral of sin. I told you this last week. Outside of God's intervening in our life, it is not getting better. We do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to get it better. We are not right outside of the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us through Jesus. And God shows up in Jacob's life and rescues him out of this downward spiral. Now, as we wrap this message up today, I want to make a few points for us to take home and process. 
I'm going to be open up front to say these are really heavy and very heady. But if you'll engage this stuff, there is significant rescue for you in it. Here's the first one. Number one, the legacy of your family will be deeply connected to the culture of your family. The legacy of your family will be deeply connected to the culture of your family. There's a lot of us that aspire to certain types of legacies. I would love to leave behind a legacy of faith and generosity and charity. We aspire to them. But your legacy will not be what you aspire to. It will be connected to the culture that you propagate in your life. Nobody says, I want to leave behind a legacy of control or a legacy of self-righteousness. Most of us would say, I want to leave behind a legacy of faith. But you can't leave a legacy of faith without a culture of faith. It's a way of life. And it's that way of life, that system of decisions and choices that are rooted around faith that leave a legacy of faith. What's the culture of your family? What is it? Be honest. Are you right now leaving behind a legacy of addiction and addictive behaviors? Because you don't know how to say no to things that are destroying your family from within. Are you leaving behind a legacy of control? Because you always know what everybody else is supposed to do. Are you leaving behind a legacy of being self-righteous? Because you're always arguing about how right you are. Or are you leaving behind a legacy of faith? based on a culture of faith. What is it? A culture of faith makes faith the central feature for how you live. Which means when we process conflict, we do it through our faith. When we go through times of suffering, we don't just suffer, we suffer through the lens of our faith. When we're making decisions in life, our faith is the primary feature for how we process those decisions. The way we live in its essence is anchored in our faith. That's a culture of faith. And the legacy that you're leaving behind is deeply connected to the culture of your family. Now the second point, this is a big idea. And you see this in the life of Jacob. And I want to spend some time making this today. Number two, God's gracious and merciful intervention in our lives does not always rescue us from the sinful culture we've spent years building. Now leave that up there for a second. I want to explain this. God's rescue, when God saves us, His gracious and merciful intervention. When God, out of His grace and mercy, that's God's love, comes and saves us, it does not always rescue us 
from the consequences of the sinful culture we've been building for years. I would love to believe that every time somebody comes out and they make a decision to follow Jesus, that everything in your life magically and instantly changes, but that's not how it works. There are things that God through His mercy does instantly and that is powerful. But when you come to faith and you're about my age and you've been spending 15 years teaching that kid how to be controlling just like you are, and all of a sudden God begins to rescue you from that, you've already spent 15 years building that culture right there. And there are times we live in the impact of the sinful culture, the decisions we've been making for years behind us. Jacob is the result of culture, family culture sin. There's rebelliousness behind him. There's manipulation behind him. And then God shows up and saves Jacob. Let's talk about what happens when we get saved. Ephesians chapter 2, this is what happens. God saved you by His grace when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done because none of us need to boast about it. Right? This is the, the truth of salvation. God saves us when we believe in Him. It's our confessed belief. Jesus, You died on the cross for my sins. You were the sacrifice that paid the penalty I'm supposed to pay. I believe that Your way is the only way to live. I believe that You are my Lord and Savior. When I believe that, when I believe in the Gospel of Jesus, God saves me. It's not because of the good things I've done. And when you are saved, you are saved to God from sin, eternally rescued through Jesus Christ. But it needs to be said in a moment like this, Jesus won the war, but we're still fighting the battle. We know the outcome of it. We know how it's all going to end, but we're left in the middle of the fight. So we've got to fight. We've got to engage in the war. Jacob, when you look at this moment in Jacob's life, Jacob is dealing with the effects of a sinful culture that was handed down. And it's getting worse as it goes generationally and progresses. But then there's an emerging culture within Jacob of faith. He walks out of that moment a changed man, limping. But I need you, if you know this story, and Pastor Dan's going to spend some time talking about this next week. When he walks out limping, his older kids are already adults. And they are in their adult years as manipulative and broken as Jacob was. He had already passed on the baton. They already had a culture of manipulation and brokenness in them. But there were two young ones that were still impressionable. And in the next 75 years, one of those 
who has a dad who experienced a life change, who sees faith come alive in him, is going to literally change and save the world. This is why I can say this. The longer a culture has been permitted, the more difficult it is to change. For some of us, this has been handed down for generations and generations. And we got to know, listen, there's a time to start fighting against it. So what do we do? This is real simple. Number three, changing my family's culture starts with me. Changing my family's culture starts with me. I told you in the very first week, you got to resist the urge to blame mama, to blame daddy, to say that this is because they were that way. They did this. They passed it down. Go all the way back to the grandparents and the generations and trace it all the way back. you got to resist that urge. You could spend the rest of your life blaming your parents. And you know what changes? Nothing. That's what changes. Or you could finally say, I am not a victim to my past. My family might have always been addicts, but I can tell you right now, that stops with me. I'm going to fight that fight. I'm not handing that off. Well, my family might have always been controlling. I'm not going to, I'm not passing that off to the next generation. When you see it, you've got two choices. You can be a victim to it or you can be an overcomer. Who is Jacob? Jacob, you're the manipulator, the supplanter. And what does God say to him? No, you will not be that anymore. Out of what I'm doing inside of you, you will be the overcomer. Don't wait, y'all. Don't delay it. Don't keep putting it off. Because here's the thing that we don't want to recognize. You might see something that you see in your family, but you don't see everything. What God has shown you in His mercy, He's not showing you to make you feel bad about yourself. We might, as broken people, do that for other people. Try to point out stuff about them that they can't do nothing about. God doesn't do that to you. When God reveals something to you, He's given you everything you need to get over it. You don't see everything, but what you see... It's an invitation to victory through Jesus Christ. And occasionally you got to ask this question. Do you want your kids' greatest struggles to be related to something God can help you overcome right now? Are you willing to hand it off to another generation when God has opened your eyes to see it inside of you and know that you can have victory in it? It might be difficult. It might cost you something. It might be going after God in the quiet place that nobody sees. But you know that you can take hold of a victory in this season that nobody in your family has ever taken hold of. And what do we see? We see it in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham and Sarah face not being able to have a kid. 
And what happens? Isaac then faces it with his wife. They face infertility. He knows exactly what to do. He turns to God and he prays and they have a victory. Why? Because his parents took hold of a victory that gave him access to that victory. If you're a grandparent in here, it might be a grandkid that gets access to a victory that you fight for right now. Think about the family culture you want to leave behind. The legacy that you want to leave behind. So many of us say, I, I want to leave a legacy where I made a positive difference, where there's kids that are better off because my grandkids got to be around me. My kids grew up in my family that you handed off something good to them. But occasionally we need to ask these questions. Are you living what you want to be remembered for? Right now, in your life, are you living it out? Or is it just good intentions? I mean, I'd love to do that one day. One day ain't coming. You've got two days. Are you living what you want to be remembered for? Your greatest struggles are probably related. They are. And there's stuff that when you look around, you'll look back through your family and go, I wish I would have never had that handed to me. I can't believe. Listen, we got to understand most parents are doing the best they can with what they got where they are. I'm not going to blame mom and dad. It's related. I see it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it where I am. I'm not a victim to my past. Through Jesus Christ, I'm an overcomer. And you need to see this. Your greatest struggles are probably related, but your potential victory is most certainly related. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you become an adopted child to your heavenly Father. And in that relationship, God sent His Son Jesus to pay the price to break all the chains that are on your life. There is nothing that your family has been in bondage to that Jesus hasn't already paid for your freedom. All you got to do is accept it as paid in full. Begin to live in what He's already won for you. You got to fight the battle where you are and you got to let God do something in you. Are you living what you want to pass down? Are there things that you're allowing to live in your heart that you're willfully passing off to the next generation? Are you embracing the victory that we can only have in Jesus Christ? Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.